footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello everyone, welcome to Footballers' Lives. Today I'm joined by a man who lives only a mile or so away from me down here in sunny Hove. A man who won four Scottish Premier League titles and five Scottish Cups with Aberdeen and Celtic, as well as the European Cup Winners' Cup with Sir Alex Ferguson's Dons on an incredible night in Gothenburg back in 1983. As a manager, he led three different teams to promotion in England and has managed in more than 900 games. Despite all of that, he still says that he's unfulfilled when it comes to management and would happily jump back into the game if the right opportunity presented itself. This is Footballers Lives with Mark McGee. Okay, Mark, a lot of the focus this series has been on transitioning into life away from the game and how prepared players were for that. But your background is a little different to most of the lads who I've spoken to previously in that when you were starting out at Morton in the late 70s, you were also combining that with working in an architect's office and doing your studying for that. In your mind at the time, did you think that a non-footballing career was the most likely or were you just being sort of ultra-sensible? No, because I'd actually started at Bristol City. You know, I had two years there as an apprentice, as it was in those days. Um, that would have been about um, 73 to 75. And uh, and then at the end of my apprenticeship, there was a bit of debate whether I get kept or didn't get kept. And I ended up coming back up the road. And that was when I went to Morton. So at that point, Obviously, I had kind of, uh, regardless of what I thought, I had sort of failed at Bristol City to get a professional contract. So I had to sort of stare at a reality. Um, I was really lucky because my parents had some uh, contacts to um, a friend who was, uh, whose father was in business with Jock Steen, um, this then, you know, uh, uh, Celtic manager. And through him, I managed to get a trial with Celtic. And uh, Celtic uh, wanted me to come back, but Jockstein got badly injured in a car crash at that time. And they said to me I was going to have to wait, but what had happened was I had I'd played so well in the trial game, you know, it was just like one of these flukes that I was invited to play a game for Morton. And I, it was the end of the season, you know, I'd just come back from Bristol City. So I played in a, a, a Renfrewshire Cup game. And to be honest, what happened that night was that my, my coach at, uh, at Bristol City had been Dave Merrington, who was later at Southampton and, and in different places, and he did some work for me at, at Wolves. And uh, everything that Dave had taught me or tried to teach me and that I'd never quite combined, I managed to do it in those two games. For, so I don't know whether it was just a penny dropped or the pressure of knowing that if I didn't, then I was out of it. But in those two games, everything came together and I really played well. So Morton were begging me to sign and they were promised me first team football where I Celtic were wanting me to wait until Jock Steen was recovered from his, what was a very serious car crash. So I went to Morton and I was facing the reality then. They were part-time, trained Tuesday, Thursday and played whenever there were games, usually a, a Wednesday and a Saturday if there were a midweek game. And uh, I had architecture was what I'd wanted to do before I'd got the chance to go to Bristol City. So I did get the chance to go and work. I was lucky again, 
little bit of a family connection. I was lucky that I got um, a position in what was the best teaching office in Scotland. Um, the two guys that were the senior partners were the professors of architecture at the Macintosh School of Art. So I was lucky. So that was why, you know, and that was how I ended up back in, in you know, back doing the architecture. Okay. And I think that was Gillespie Kidd and Coyle, wasn't it? Who you were well played. Training with. Yeah. Right, right, right. Who, who are an iconic Scottish, or were an iconic Scottish uh, practice. They did a lot of the sort of churches and housing round about the sort of uh, late 60s, 70s. You know, some of it was, you know, pilloried, but a lot of it was pretty kind of avant-garde, you know. And uh, um, it was a fantastic place for, you know, all of Gillespie, Kid and Coya and the two senior guys there now are all passed away. They're, they were older, you know, but um, it, it was a fantastic place to have that opportunity. Yeah. And I think you carried on studying for seven years in total, didn't you? So how difficult was that? Combining it with no, no, I didn't. I didn't study for seven years. I really, I, I, when I went back to Morton, um, I then had to catch up because I'd, I'd left school. Uh, in fact, the day I was asked to sign from Bristol City, and um, we were all waiting in the dress room to be called in by Dave Merrington to be told whether we'd, we'd all. There was a big crowd of us had all been in trial from all over the country for for a week, and uh, at Bristol City were taking us in one at a time to say you're we want you to sign or we don't want you to sign. So we're all waiting in the dressing room. When I got a, it was my turn, I got a shout. But when he took me in, it wasn't he talk, it was out of turn. And he told me my mum had just phoned to say that they had my O-level results and I'd passed all my O-levels. But I hadn't, at that stage, obviously sat higher, you know, or, or A-levels. So when I went back to Scotland, the first thing I had to do was get my A-levels. So I sat three A-levels and got them and that allowed me to get into the, the, the Macintosh School of Art. So for those two years, I was studying my A-levels and it was a bit, a bit more than two years and uh, working in the office and combining the two and playing for Morton, and, um, which, which I loved. Um, so when the call came, and it literally came when I was sitting in the office one day, to, I was told, uh, you've been sold to Newcastle, get your bag and be at you know, Central Station in Glasgow by three o'clock this afternoon. Uh, get your mum or dad to bring some stuff, you know, and it literally was, I had to say to Andy McMillan and uh, Izzy Metstein, the two guys, look, I'm sorry, I need to go. And of course, they were hugely supportive. They loved the idea of me playing for Morton and some of them used to come to games and stuff like that, you know, so they were delighted for me and uh, and I, I always kept in touch with them, so I knew them until they died, the two of them, you know. Yeah. Do you think it would have been possible to combine being a professional footballer, a full-time professional footballer, with doing some sort of education? Or is it just too pressurised? Even though some people say, well, you only train two hours in the morning and that's it. Is it possible to combine it? Well, it, I, I think it was much more difficult in those days because you had to go there. You know, I had to, I had to go to Langside College and I had to go to the College of Building and Printing to get that qualification to get into uh, the Macintosh. So I was able to do it because I was part-time. Now, had I been a full-time player, it would have clashed with lessons, you know. Now, it's totally different nowadays. You know, there is so much resource online. Um, I'm doing the, the, the diploma in football management at the moment, and it's uh, with the LMA, and it's totally uh, all online at the moment because of the circumstances. So I think nowadays, uh, players do have an opportunity, and I think it should be encouraged, even if it's not... You know, especially for top players, obviously, who 
uh, will will likely come out with a, a you know a pension or with a um, a, a, a wage that will keep them keep them right for the rest of time. But for their own brains and for their own development, it's not a bad thing to be doing something else. So and and to use up that spare time. So I think it's a, nowadays it's better. And do you think it's down to a player's desire to go and do that? Or does the football industry, governing bodies, unions, etc., have a responsibility to actively really encourage players to go and do it? I think there are players who naturally want to learn. And the modern player, I think, um, is much more aware of that than maybe most of us were in our day. I mean, when I was at Aberdeen, I started at the front of... I always seem to stall, but I started the Open University when I was up at Aberdeen, and then I got sold to Hamburg. So in those days, again, it was kind of uh, videotapes and stuff like that, and uh, university, uh, Open University on the telly, you know, that you had to be there to watch it on the TV. So when I went to Hamburg, again, I had to drop that, and I'd only just done the first year of the, the, the sort of preparation, uh, what do you call it, I can't remember, the first year of the university thing. Foundation uh, course or an access course. Yeah, that sort of thing, you know, foundation course, you know, the foundation where you, you didn't do anything that was directly related to what you were eventually going to do, but... Right. Um, and what uh, was that subject in, Mark? Uh, do you know what? I, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, what would I have been doing? Uh, the first year was general when it was, you know, measuring the distance to the moon and all that, you know, it was just, I think it was just to get your brain in tune. Um, but the actual course, I, I can't remember, you know. It would have been some sort of English or something like that, you know. But just to prepare uh, for sort of degree level work. And just to keep me occupied, you know, yeah. at the time, you know, to keep me occupied, you know. Um, and to feel as if you're, you're, you're doing something, you know, rather than just sitting at home. So, yeah. Um, but I had to stop because I went to Hamburg. But I think back to what you said, I think uh, nowadays um, the, the, the PFA, uh, obviously with players um, and the LMA as far as managers and that concerned are brilliant at supporting uh, managers and you know whether employed or unemployed or you know future or past they're brilliant at, at supporting guys to do uh, development you know self uh, improvement sort of stuff and that so yeah I think there is a, a willingness um, whether it's a responsibility it probably is with the, F uh, the PFA because you know, a lot of players don't end up, you know, those players coming from the sort of below the championship, certainly, don't end up with a, with a amount of money in their bank that they're secure for the rest of their life. It's only if they get to play at the highest level, then they've got a chance of that. So they do have to prepare for life after football. And I think the other thing about that is that, um, and I think we're going to be touching on it, it's not the shock then, you know, that so when you you might finish with injury or you might finish because, like I did, I finished not because I was injured, but because I'd had enough of playing and I wanted to do something else. But for someone who suddenly finds himself no longer a player with no longer in the, in the business, that can be where we have problems. And I think that's what we're going to talk partly about. And that's where some sort of preparation and some sort of um, thought process as to there is going to have to be something else will soften that, you know, landing from being a full-time professional footballer. Yeah. Okay, now we'll definitely talk about that. I also wanted to talk about some things from your playing days how that have kind of shaped you. Um, and also to give us an indication of how different the game was back in 1977-78 when you were playing for Morton and were promoted to that top flight. Can you give us the circumstances surrounding your life-changing to move 
life-changing move to Newcastle because I think it involved a night out and then suddenly uh, playing out of your skin the next day, didn't it? Oh, yeah, that part of it, yeah, I'm not proud of that. But um, I did mention it uh, recently, and it's only recently I've mentioned it, but, you know, one of my colleagues, Andy Ritchie, who was a bit of a rascal, um, I used to get a lift home sometimes with him, and the night before we played midweek game against uh, Hamilton Ackies, um, he said he comes from up that way up Hamilton, you know, um, and uh, he said to me, we'll, we'll drop in and see these guys, wind them up. They're all supporters of Hamilton, his mates. So we went to this pub and, well, you know, all discipline went out the window and the two of us got hammered. And I'd never done that before. I don't mean I'd never got hammered, but I'd never got hammered the night before a game. And uh, I went home. The next day I said to my mum, you know, I can't go to work. Uh, and you're going to have to phone Benny Rooney and tell him, the manager at Morton, and tell Benny that I can't make it, that I'm injured or ill or sick or missing in action. And uh, my mum said, well, you know, I'm not bothered about work. If you don't go to work, that's up to you. You, need, you can explain it. But there's no way I'm phoning Benny. If you, you're not going to go, then you phone Benny, you know. So I was terrified of Benny Rooney. So um, I thought, I can't do that. So I thought, I've just got to go. So I slept all day and tried to sleep it off. But even when I was getting the train down to Greenock, I was, you know, I was heaving sort of thing, you know. But the rest, you know, as you say, is history. We played that night uh, and it was the only time in my life that I scored four goals. You know, I scored hat-tricks, but I'd never scored four. I'd never scored four since. And I scored four that night and uh, Newcastle were there watching me and other people were there, obviously. And, you know, it was the first step towards getting down south to Newcastle. It was just, I don't recommend it to any player, by the way, so it's not a good example. Yeah. Well, it's very rare you hear the words go down south to Newcastle, but that's exactly what you did. Yeah. You were mature enough as a 20-year-old to make a success of that move. And what was the club like back then? It was, uh, well, I mean, it was only a partial success, really. Um, again, I, I was ready for it because I'd been, I'd left home at 16 and spent two years in Bristol on own, you know. So I was kind of, you know, streetwise in that respect. So I had no fears about leaving Glasgow and going back down south. And I knew that that's where you needed to be. And they were in the top division at the time and all of that. So it was a massive move for me. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, I, I, I left over the sort of uh, Christmas New Year period. This was like the 26th of December or something like that, you know, Boxing Day or something like that. And uh, I made my debut on the... 3rd or 4th uh, of January at Leeds, you know, so I went from playing for Morton in front of, you know, four or five, if you're lucky, 6,000 people and a lot less at some of the teams that we played um, to playing at Ellen Road in front of whatever it was, 40,000, you know, uh, played against Gordon McQueen and all the Trevor Cherry and all the famous Leeds players that were playing and we won 2 nothing. Uh, it was the first time uh, uh, Newcastle had won at Ellen Road in 12 years or something like that, you know, so it was a good debut, but but it was mixed, you know. Um, the, the, the team were in transition. They were an older team. It was kind of coming apart. Um, the manager at the time, Bill McGarry, was a great guy, um, but was at war, really, with a lot of the senior pros and his methods and stuff were a bit too... Um, you know, um, militarised for, for them, a bit too rigid for a lot of the, the senior pros and uh, he was having a difficult time. So that affected me and, you know, so 
I had a great ally at one point there, um, Peter With, you know, who played at Villa and the likes, big Withy come in. And, uh, you know, he was a, you know, him and his wife took me under the wing, as it were. I stayed with them for a bit until I got my own flat and they looked after me and Withy got me driving and, you know, and that helped me a lot, you know, and I played with him, of course, and he was a fantastic uh, foil, you know, he was an animal, you know, if people don't know who's like, you know, Alan McAnally, maybe he's the most recent sort of uh, centre forward that I would have played with that was anything like Withy. Um, but he helped me. But, you know, eventually um, I got a phone call, or they got a phone call from Fergie, um, who, which he was at the time. He was Fergie then. He's now Sir Alec, of course, and we'll, we'll transition into that title once we get to that stage. But at the moment, he was Fergie. And he had tried to buy me from Morton for St Mirren. And then uh, he told me later that, you know, he'd offered 25,000 and uh, Morton wanted 27,500 and uh, the St Mirren board wouldn't stretch to 27,500, you know, and then a few months later I went to uh, Newcastle for 150,000, you know, so he, he, he kept an eye on me and he saw that it was going okay but not brilliantly and therefore he thought, mm, you know, have a wee dabble here, so he came in for me and Bill McGarry, the way Bill McGarry spoke to me was, look, he said, it's up to you. He said, if you want to go, you can go. If you want to stay and get on with it, then stay, you know. Uh, but because Alec Ferguson had tried twice then, by then, to get me, that gave me a lot of kind of confidence that I'd be going to somebody that actually believed in me, you know, because this was a second time he was coming for me. Even though I'd only done moderately well at Newcastle at that time, um, he, he, he wanted me, so I thought that was good enough for me. So I thought at least I'll do is go and meet him, you know. Yeah. And I think you were his first major signing, and obviously he was making his way in the game as a young manager, and he must have had so much desire at the time. But I read that Gordon Strachan said that you weren't afraid to kind of challenge him when it came to tactics. You'd be happy to put your hand up in in team meetings and and challenge him in that regard. Can you give yeah, an example of that? Yeah, when you say you, you mean us all. You don't just mean me. Um, Oh, so it was the team in general, right? The other yeah, way yeah. Read, it seemed to be that the team would challenge him, but you were perfectly happy to put your hand up and, and offer your opinion. No problem. Yeah, well, you know, there's, a, there's a story about that as well. You know, um, when I left, uh, 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 when I became, sorry, when I became manager at Reading, which was my first job, the manager that I had worked with at Newcastle, had went back to Newcastle, was Jim Smith, you know, Bald Eagle who sadly, you know, died not long ago, you know, and he was a, you know, brilliant, brilliant man-manager, a great guy and a brilliant guy to work for. But Jim Smith, like that, would say, uh, anybody got anything to say? And of course, I was coming to the end of my, near the end of my career, and by that time I was thinking about being a manager and a coach, so I always had something to say, you know, so I'd be, yeah, well, I think, did, did, did. And then when I became manager, I realised that when managers say, has anybody anything to say? They don't want anybody to say anything. They just want you to shut up and go on with it, you know? And I actually, at the time, there was no texts or emails or anything like that. So I actually wrote Jim a letter. Um, I think he was at Portsmouth by then. And I sent Jim a, a, a letter saying, look, I want to apologise for all the times I had something to say, you know, because I know that it's not what you wanted, you know, and he, he loved it. And, uh, you know, when I met up with him, when we played him and stuff, he, talk, he talked about it, you know. But... 
Um, yeah, I think at Aberdeen it, it was like that. But, you know, go back to when I met Alec Ferguson in the hotel in Glasgow. Um, you know, I think I've said this recently as well, that um, Aberdeen hadn't won the league for 25 years and they hadn't won the cup, the Scottish Cup, for 12 years. And the first thing he said to me was he wanted to win a European Cup within five years. Now, in normal circumstances, you'd think he's delusional, you know, he's, an, he's a fantasist and he's a nutcase, you know. But, as I said recently, I came out of that meeting feeling like the best player I had ever felt and feeling as confident as I ever felt as a player because of his attitude and because of his belief in what they were doing there and the people that you had there. He sold me, you know, hook, line and sinker, you know. And of course, you know, uh, we won a, a European Cup within four years, you know. So it was proven right because, you know, ultimately you had to win the league before you could get in the European Cup and hadn't done it for 25 years. So it was a big ask that we did it. It's interesting you say that Sir Alex made you feel, or Fergie as he was then, he made you feel 10 feet tall. I remember uh, speaking to Adam Virgo at a wedding, one of your former Brighton players, and that's exactly what he said about you. He said, Mark made me feel 10 feet tall, and, uh, you know, he was great with players. So do you think you already had that in your personality DNA, or were you taking bits uh, maybe through osmosis from someone like Ferguson? Yeah, osmosis is the right word, because um, I think that none of us um, that were in that group are the type of people who, you know, sort of do impersonations. You know, I think that Gordon and Alec McLeish and Willie Miller and Neil Cooper and all the guys that went into the sort of management side and coaching side, Eric Black, um, who's a, had a brilliant coaching career, um, all of them are pretty independent minds, you know, but how could you not be influenced by, you know, somebody like that? You know, that first meeting I had, you know, that confidence, that self-belief. And a lot of the things, you know, I'm doing a lot of stuff at the moment with the, uh, about leadership and all that sort of thing. And, you know, one of the things that's clear is that, you know, leaders need to have a, a vision. You know, they have to have a clear vision for you to buy into. And then they've got to sell it to you, you know. And, you know, that's the thing that, that, that we probably learned as much as anything, that when we all became managers... The first thing we did or before we landed as managers, we, we kind of defined our own beliefs. Now, they weren't all the same as Alec Ferguson's, but you can be absolutely sure that, as you say, through osmosis, that we've been influenced by his beliefs and that a lot of what we do is because we were with him. But other managers as well, of course, Jim Smith, I mentioned, I was with Billy McNeil and Davy Hay and... Uh, Gunter Netzer and Ernst Happel and you know these guys are massive figures in the game so how could you not learn? Yeah and that period at Aberdeen was so successful and it was a time when Scottish football was revered in a way that it's probably not at the moment you know I could name that Aberdeen team from from 1983 I, I don't think I could name an Aberdeen player now but uh, obviously, you won the Scottish Cup in 1982. You've won five Scottish Cups, which is incredible. But in terms of that 1983 European Cup Winners' Cup final, what are your memories of the run to the final? Well, you know, um, we, 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 the, one of the things that was a bit weird was that we, we won the semi-final like 5 nothing or something like that. And I think we lost 1-0 in Watershire. Uh, but we, we won the first game like 5 nothing. So we were in the final, you know, a long time before we should have known we were in the final sort of thing. So we had a lot of time to prepare and a lot of time to wait, of course. And 
there's a lot can happen in that period, you know, in terms of staying fit and we're still challenging for the league and we've still got the Scottish Cup and we're still in that. So you're trying to keep your competitive edge and not be lost. You know, and I, you see it nowadays, you, you wonder about teams, are they thinking about Europe, are they thinking about the league, you know, the, the League Cup and all that sort of thing, you know. So it definitely affects your mind. So to stay focused on other things is, is quite different, particularly because it was so long before it. So the, the run was fantastic, you know. I loved the European games. I loved going to Europe. I loved going to these places, you know. Over the years that, you know, I was lucky for 10 years with Aberdeen, Hamburg and Celtic. I played European football every single year for 10 years. Um, I played a lot of games in Europe and went to amazing places, places like Tirana at the time, you know. And this is post, uh, you know, the, the, the wall coming down. This is communist Tirana in Albania, um, communist uh, Hungary, communist uh, uh, all sorts of Russia. We went to Kiev with Celtic, of course, before the war. In fact, we were there the month that, uh, uh, during the Chernobyl thing, we were there when they were, if you've seen it, they were there when they were taking all that stuff off the roof of the reactor. We were in Kiev, you know, it's mental. But I loved going to these places and experience not only the towns and the cities, but how football was received. And, you know, we all think we're the best supporters in the world, you know, Celtic supporters, at that time, Aberdeen supporters, Man United supporters, Liverpool, they all think they're the best in the world, the most passionate, they care more about their club than anyone. And then you go to Tirana, or you go to Sofia, you go to Kiev. Kiev, there was 101,000 at the game, you know, uh, Dynamo Kiev, you know, it's like the, the world's amazing attitude towards football, and we got to see that, and that, that, for me, that was just the experience of a lifetime. Yeah, and then the final, got to talk about the final. Actually, when was the last time you spoke about it? Gothenburg, you're playing Real Madrid, and obviously you set up the winner for John Hewitt. How often are you asked about it? Well, not so much down here, of course, but you know, Scotland is mentioned all the time, and if, if anyone's aware of, of me, and you know, I'm doing a lot of work on TV at the moment, of course, when you go in, people go, oh, you know, uh, Aberdeen, Aberdeen, you know, sort of thing, you know, so people love it. And of course, one of the things that, you know, you can never get away from is what they love is Alec Ferguson, you know. I mean, you talk about, you know, legends. I mean, my God, people just want to speak about it. They don't want to speak about me, you know. They, they, you know, people say, you know, oh, you're my favourite player. Tell me about Alec Ferguson, you know. So I think, you know, uh, is, it, it, you know, everybody wants to talk about him, um, whether they're um, Aberdeen supporters or Man United supporters or just football supporters and they know there's a connection. Uh, they, they they absolutely love hearing the stories about Sir, you know what he is now, Sir Ali. Um, but uh, the the final, wow, you know, uh, I I don't get, I don't talk about it that much, you know, and I never have done. I'm not someone who dwells on these things, but of course I'm, you know, proud of the fact I was part of it. Um, I've got a picture up somewhere. Yeah, actually, I'll show you the picture. Give me two yeah, seconds. Please do. I remember watching the game, you know, and obviously John Hewitt came on as a sub and scored the winner with that diving header, and you put the cross in. So it's an incredible moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, of course, it, 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 it was ridiculous that we managed to. So there's. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, just put it in the cup. And again, you talk about what's different. Look at that. You know, just a bunch of us on the pitch. You know, nowadays there's a panfare and there's a stage and there's all the stuff that goes around it, fireworks and all that, you know. But in those days, you know, they, they walked out onto the pitch. They gave you the, they gave you the cup. 
and uh, we all got in a huddle and celebrated in front of our own fans, you know. Yeah. Um, so a different world completely, really a different world. Um, and was it champagne after all? Was it plenty of tenants? Oh, no, it was uh, champagne all the way, I can assure you, you know. We... Um, uh, afterwards, uh, the wives all joined us, and, and the next day they flew back in our plane as well. And as it was, my wife, um, her pal, was a stewardess with Britannia who were flying us, and I made sure that Sir Alec made sure that she was on the team flight, you know. So of course, because she was there, we just got poured, you know. They, you know, she looked after us. You can, uh, Isabel, her name was, and she looked after us, and. Uh, uh, of course, you know, we were pretty much washed away by the time we got to um, to uh, Pitodri. Pitodri, yeah. Well, oh, I was the game, sorry, the game, the game was, uh, you know, it's not a blur because I've watched it since. Um, um, but, you know, we, we deserve to win. That was important. Absolutely. I was going to ask you one more question related to uh, Sir Alex because later on that year, you won the Scottish Cup. You beat Rangers 1-0, but it's best remembered, I've seen it on YouTube a few times, but Ferguson absolutely cane in the team for their performance. Was it deserved and was it a similar story in the dressing room or was that just for the cameras? No, no, it was, I don't think he really said anything. He just was, he, he, you know, one of, the, one of the Neville brothers said something once and it kind of summed up something that I had felt for years and years and hadn't been able to put any words. And it's really simple what he said, but he summed it up. And he said that, um, uh, I can't remember which of the Neville brothers it was, but he said that when you went out the, the door to the game, to play the game, it was about you and him. If you didn't play well or if you lost, you were letting him down. You know, it wasn't like the fans, it wasn't your, your family, it wasn't your teammates, it wasn't anybody but him. It, you know, and he had that ability that, you know, he could make you feel like that just by not saying anything. Do you know what I mean? He, 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 and, and if you felt as if you, he, he, you'd let him down, it hurt, you know, it was hard to handle, you know, and he had that kind of, you know, uh, gravitas about him, you know, he had like, and he could do it in that sort of way. So I think the Scottish Cup, you know, win. <laughs> we didn't get beat, we won. Um, that's kind of more the way, although he had the, 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 the lambasted us on the pitch and it's hilarious. I think, I mean, when I watch it, I just think it's hilarious. Um, but when he was in the dressing room, it was just the kind of disgust in his face that kind of, you know, in the fact he wasn't celebrating winning the cup, you knew that something wasn't right. Um, we didn't agree with it. It was ridiculous. You know, I don't care what anybody says and I don't know what he feels about it today. I don't know if he's ever mentioned it, but it was ridiculous, you know, because we had won the, the Cup Winners' Cup uh, 10 days earlier, we had been more or less steaming for a week. You know, we'd sobered up, trained, and then went out to play Rangers in the, the Scottish Cup final. You know, how could you not celebrate beating Real Madrid? So it'd been a long week. So I don't know what he was expecting, but the fact is we went there and we we, we knuckled down and we, we won the Cup. And uh, I think he was being a bit hard on us, to be honest. Just a little bit, yeah. But um, you've talked a lot about how you much you embrace these European trips. Is that why you joined Hamburg a year or so later? Yeah, it was really um, the idea of going and playing. Hamburg had just won the, the, the year we won the, the Commonwealth Cup. They won the European Cup. You know, they beat Juventus and Turin 1 0. Felix Magath scored the goal. And so the opportunity, I, I could have went to um, Italy. 
Um, there was a lot of interest at the time from Tottenham. Um, I could have pursued that a little bit. But the idea of going to the European champions, more or less, and they were still the same players in Hamburg and playing in Europe, playing the Bundesliga, just for me was a brilliant opportunity, you know, learning a language and the culture and where it would lead in terms of the, your life, you know. It, it was it was too, too good an opportunity. So, yeah, I jumped at it. How different was it culturally, both on and off the pitch? Um, you know, players were pretty much the same. Players are players, so they made you very welcome. Um, not many of them spoke English, which was a surprise, but there was a couple of... Funny enough, a couple of foreigners was a Belgian lad, Gerard Plessers, and a, a Norwegian boy, uh, Eric Soler, and they spoke brilliant English. And uh, one boy that was there had played in America for a while, so he could speak good English. And one or two had a little smarting, but I had to try and learn German quickly. So that was part of the getting into the culture and getting into the way of life was to learn the language before you could fully understand what was going on around you. But Hamburg's an amazing, beautiful city, so it's not a bad place to be. Um, the fans are tremendous, you know, they talk about, you know, um, not, they're not quite Millwall fans, but there's some way between Millwall fans and Celtic Rangers fans, you know, they're sort of pretty, they can be pretty extreme, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, a, a lot of changed in terms of what I was used to in that respect. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it was a great opportunity in the culture and all that. I loved it. People, you know, we all have an impression, or we had an impression before going there about what German people were like, you know. And I have to say, you know, they're the nicest bunch of people, you know, you'd ever want to meet, they really are. And do you think, on reflection, you would have enjoyed staying out there a bit longer, or was it just the pull of Celtic that brought you back? No, I mean, very, I mean, I know touching this briefly, but, you know, um, I came back because of family business. My, my wife wasn't very well and uh, I had to get back. I really did. Otherwise, I would no way in this planet had I came back, even to Celtic. The fact that it was Celtic made it easier because it was my hometown and I could get the support I needed at that time. Um, so um, it, it was right for me to come back, but no, I, I, there's no way in this planet had I came back if if it hadn't been for that. Right, okay. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, so it was towards the end of your Celtic time that it really came good as well, didn't it? On the pitch again. You won the league in 88. Um, and I think you described running out for Celtic in an old firm game as the ultimate rush. Uh, for all you've said about fans abroad and in Kiev and all the rest of it, is that the ultimate in terms of an atmosphere? Oh. The thing about it is, you know, you can argue that Hamburg fans and Milan fans and, you know, Juventus fans, all the, 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 the Barcelona fans are, as, are as, a, as, you know, passionate as Celtic fans or Rangers fans. But I don't care what anybody said. It's when they come together that it's special, you know, um, and more, I think, you know, more potent and more extreme in the sense than, you know, the two Milan teams, you know, or, you know, Liverpool and Everton or, you know, uh, Man United, Man City. There's an edge to the Celtic Rangers um, situation that the others don't have, you know, and I, I think we all know what it is, you know, that sort of um, historical sort of sectarian divide that's, you know, that was maybe bigger then than it is now, I'm not sure, actually. But it was, um, to, 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 to some extent, cultivated 
for you know by the fans for the fans you know sort of thing in the sense that it uh, allowed them their own identity but when they came together oh my god it was it was amazing you know the the atmosphere and the the, the tension that was in the air for the week well you scored plenty of goals in your fourth season there and you you skipped Celtic to a battle of Britain win against Liverpool in Dubai I would genuinely never heard about this game until yesterday was it was it a proper game and what do you remember about it uh, it actually went we went there two years in a row it was a competition that was uh, dreamt up by the sponsors you know where the Scottish champions went and played the English champions and in and, and those two years that we were there Liverpool were the champions of England and we were the champions of Scotland and uh, therefore we went over and basically what happened was uh, we went down to London and met with them in a hotel in London on a, on a Saturday night and we were allowed our, our leash and everyone had a few beers and that and then went over there and buckled down a little bit but not terribly seriously uh, and then we played the game and uh, at that time uh, Roy Aitken was the Celtic captain, Tommy Burns was the vice captain and both of them were injured so I was uh, given the captaincy which you know I don't care what the game was you know it was a fantastic uh, uh, honour if you like to, to to captain the team you know and I do I do remember that fondly because of what it was you know being the captain and the fact that we won but it was a kind of uh, fairly, um, the preparation wasn't what it would be, for instance, for a European game. But the actual desire from the two sets of players and from the two clubs to win it was as good on the night because it was Scotland-England. You know, regardless of how many Scots were playing for Liverpool, it was still Scotland v England. And uh, and therefore, the game took an edge that, you know, that maybe the preparation didn't demonstrate or reflect but, um, I, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that that happened and I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, no problem. No, I, I was fascinated when I read about it. But you mentioned Scotland-England there. I think it was 1984 you actually scored against England and it turned out to be a last in, fourth and last international game. Yeah, very weird because at the time, um, the week I went, I played the cup final and scored a winner in the cup final. The next day I flew to Hamburg and signed for Hamburg. And then I came back and I played the following week against England at Hamden. So at that point, I had broken into the Scotland team. I'd finally broken in ahead of, you know, prior to that, you had sort of Kenny Dalglish and Joe Jordan and a lot of really good strikers. So I struggled to get anywhere near it. But, you know, I'd, I'd made it, you know, to the Scotland squad. So at that point, it looked as if I was about to, you know, go on a, a, a Scotland career. And then basically what happened, each time in the next couple of games where I was, you know, quoted, you know, um, I was injured or, you know, there was something wrong that I didn't manage to make it or I didn't get there. And then by the time, uh, then I got an injury, of course, in Hamburg. I got the only kind of semi-serious, if you like, injury um, in the sort of March time in my first season. And uh, therefore, that sort of ruled me out until I, almost until I came back to Celtic. And when I came back to Celtic, I was kind of injured, you know. And Davy Hay knew that. Um, I had to sort of spend a bit of time sort of playing with a bit of an injury, and then I eventually had another operation in my ankle. But it just, I just never had the chance again, you know. It was just one of these things. But you know, I wouldn't swap another ten games. For the goal against England, I can tell you that. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you managed to play against England one more time. Euro '96, a Vets game, and then back to Rod Stewart's, wasn't it? Well, actually, no. 
Um, not quite like that. We we I was living in Reading at the time. I was manager at Leicester, and uh, what I did was I, I I managed to acquire sixty tickets for the game, and I invited all friends and family. You know, Alec McLeish was there, and Andy Watson and Gordon Strachan, of course, and others, and uh, all my family and friends, and they all came down to the village where we um, lived in Reading, um, in Pangbourne. And we booked them all into a, a, a lovely little French hotel there and the Friday. And we had a, a party on the Friday night, all of these, about 50 of us. And then I'd organised a coach to go and watch the game, but go and watch the, the, the pre-match entertainment, which of course was the veterans game um, at, at Hamden. And then, uh, uh, sorry, at Wembley. And, uh, and then back to Reading and we had another party on the Saturday night. And then on the Sunday, we all went through to Rod's place and uh, we, we went through there and played Rod's team. Yeah, that's right. What was that like at Rod's place? Uh, well, you know, um, of course, you know, Rod uh, has become uh, a great friend of Gordon, you know, one of Gordon's closest friends. Um, and Gordon and I met him because he, 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 circumstances conspired and we were going on holiday to Spain and a friend was given us his house and he was a pal of Rod's and we met up with him to get the keys and his house had been flooded, we couldn't go, but Rod was with him. So Rod said, well, take my house, you know. So Rod allowed us to use his house in Estepona for our holidays. So Gordon and myself took the families off to Rod's place. And from that time, Gordon became a good friend of Rod's, you know, and uh, remains, you know, a, a friend. Um, and, you know, and uh, when I came, when he came to uh, Brighton recently, you know, uh, to the cricket club, I went in and met him, and you know, I, I, I kind of familiar with him a little bit, and saw the concert, and you know, saw him before the concert and stuff, you know. So there's a little connection there. But at that time, obviously, it was a huge thrill for particularly the wives. You know, the wives were all like made up going to Rod's house, and we went there, and uh, and we had this game. He's got a fantastic pitch. He's moved now. He's moved house, but um, he had a great pitch at the time, and he had a bunch of lads that. Um, that played in his team, a couple of ringers, a couple of ex-players, I think Dean Holdsworth played for his team and a couple of others. But uh, funny enough, on the bus coming back from Wembley, because Alan McLeish has got one of the best sense of humour, but very dry, you know, and uh, he's, he's um, a very funny guy. And uh, on the bus on the way back, someone said to Gordon, who are we playing? You know, and Gordon had said, oh, Rod's team. Uh, and he said, well, who's in Rod's team? And he said, oh, boys, mates. And Big Alex says, who? Mick Jagger and all them. <laughs> you know, and he's sort of dry sense of humour, you know. always remember that. But, uh, no, Rod had a, a regular team that trained there and played games and, you know, and he played and they all protected him. And we were we were told in no uncertain terms that nobody got to kick Rod, you know, that you didn't go near him sort of thing, you know. Um, but no, it was a great day out. Fantastic that uh, they invited us over. And as I say, to this day, when I see friends that were there, they, the wives in particular always start telling the story about going to Rod's house and that. You know, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, friends like that, lovely. Um, I just, I think your transition into management was really interesting. But just before we we go into that, because you were you were young, you were thirty four, I think. Just uh, a couple of things about Newcastle, because you went down there after Celtic, you moved down south again. Now, you and Mickey Quinn scored a load of goals in what was the championship. But I read a quote saying from him saying that you didn't really gel on the pitch. 
because you were a free spirit. But I thought you got 56 goals between you. That was a bit of a strange thing to say. I'm not quite sure where he's coming from. Uh, well, you know, it, what, I know what I know about... Um, it, McQueen and I had a great relationship. With, there were no yeah. issues, you know, absolutely fantastic. Oh, no, you were great off the pitch, but it didn't yeah. really gel on the pitch because you were a free spirit. Well, I was a free spirit, but the way it worked basically was that he stood still and I ran around. You know, that's what he means by a free spirit. Now, for instance, right, um, the first game we played was against Leeds um, at St James's. So when I made my debut for Newcastle on both occasions, it was against Leeds. One at El Road, the first one we talked about, and then uh, the second one uh, at St James's Park. And we ended up winning 5-3, I think it was. No, it wasn't 5-4. I think it was 5-3. Mm-hmm. And Quinny scored four. Right? I didn't score. But I won the man of the match. There you right? go. So I created all the goals, you know, basically. And that was the way it was. He stood in the middle of the six-yard box and I made runs all over the park. You know, and I fed everyone as much as I could into him and made his goals. So don't don't let him kid you. You know, the fact that you know we never really combined other than he got the last touch. You know, Quinny's one of those players. Um, the, the the thing you want from some players, and Quinny's one of them, is for him to have the last touch. You know, if he has a touch earlier on, sometimes he give it away. You know, he just didn't get involved. You know, so if if the play was building at the back for us. And it was with our left back. I'd be shown ready to run in the channel or to receive it. And then if it was switched out the other side, I would run back onto the right-hand side and Quinny would just stay in the same spot. So I'd spend my time running around like this to get on the ball and Quinny would be there and when the ball came in, he would score. He was a fantastic finisher. You know, he could hit, he could get power on the ball with any part of his body. You know, he was a, he was a great, great finisher. Yeah. I did hear about one goal that you did score, though, against Bradford that Lionel Messi would have been proud of. Is it on VHS anywhere? Do you remember this? Oh, you get it. You get it on YouTube. Um, it's often mentioned to me. Um, it was made all the more dramatic because it was like an injury time. It was nil-nil, and uh, it, I received the ball in the halfway line from a throw-in, and proceeded to, you know, run through. And ended up there was about five Bradford players on the ground, you know. And uh, and slotted it, you know, and we won one nil. But um, yeah, it was a pretty uh, enjoyable goal. It's, a, it's one of those ones you do. I don't, I, I don't look back much, but uh, I don't mind watching that. It's it's the one goal. Um, you know, I've got a twelve year old son, Archie, and it's the only goal that I've took the trouble to try and, you know, pin him in a chair and make him watch. You know, he doesn't really watch anything. You know, so I've sort of made him watch that one. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, we're talking about your transition into management, but you were, I think I'm right in saying, you were kind of frozen out at Newcastle by Aussie R dealers. What do you remember of that? And did you learn anything that you took into how you would handle a similar situation in management? I learned not to freeze people out, you know, but I, I knew that already because I'd heard stories, you know, about even Graham Souness at Rangers, you know, when he fell out with somebody, he would send them to play friendlies in the Outer Hebrides or something like that, you know, to to get up their, their nose, you know. And I would never do anything like that. You know, I would always just speak to people, you know. Um, but Ozzy came in and decided very early on that, you know, uh, I wasn't going to be part of his plans. And instead of kind of using me, you know, and, you know, Roy Aitken was there by that time myself. There was a couple of other senior pros. 
Um, and instead of kind of picking our brains and letting us help him, he isolated us. And the way he did it with me was another, it wasn't just the players, of course, because he had the coach there at the time, Derek Fazakali. Now, Derek Fazakali has coached in the leagues, the Premier League at Man City, at Derby, at, you know, um, Blackburn, Bol Bolton, Blackburn, you know. Top coach, absolutely top. England, you know, I think he worked for England quite a lot, uh, maybe under Glenn or something, I can't remember. Um, or Terry Venables or that, you know. A brilliant coach. But when Ozzy arrived, he was given the job of coaching me or training me. So every morning I'd come in, I was in, we'd come in and they'd say, right, here we go. And we'd take one of the young goalkeepers and sometimes we didn't have a goalie. And it'd just be me and him. And he'd be crossing balls and I'd be batting them in the net, you know. And to be fair, I was trying to recover from a, I'd played some games, but I was still in recovery from a double hernia operation. So I needed to train. Because um, I still was going to play the following season, but Aussie completely bombed us out, <laughs> and I don't, I don't hold it against them. You know, everybody does their own thing, uh, and I've, you know, seen Aussie many times since, and you know, have no issues with Aussie. You know, that's not my style. When did you start thinking about a career in management? Was it those lonely days with Derek Pazakali? Uh No, no, it was probably the better days with Derek Pazakali and the likes of Derek. You know, good coaches. Bobby Saxon at Newcastle, you know, Tommy Craig at Celtic, you know, and Archie Knox and uh, guys like that, um, you know, uh, in, in, in Aberdeen. And, of course, uh, Ernst Happel, you know, and people might not know who Ernst Happel is, but if they go to Austria and go to Vienna, they'll see that the National Stadium in, in Vienna is named, you know, their Wembley is named the Ernst Happel Stadium. You know, that's how iconic a guy he was, you know, he was a top, top coach, albeit he was getting to the end of his career when he was at Hamburg at that time. But, you know, working with these sort of people, uh, you know, gave me a flavour of, and, and of course, Sir Alec, you know, um, gave me a flavour of what it was like. And I, for, for a long time, I wanted to, um, I had an ambition to stay in the game and go into coaching and managing. Right, okay. And so you got that first opportunity at Reading, 34. I think you've been playing out with playing out in Sweden, haven't you, with with Braga? So, did you cut that short to take the management job at Reading? And how did it come about? Because there are some stories that Sir Alex recommended you for the job. Yeah, that's what happened. Was he recommended me for the interview? Basically, what happened was right at the end of that season, where, where I had been abused by Aussie, um, I had a great relationship with the club. You know. And uh, the, the, the then secretary um, pulled me in one day and he said, look, we see what's happening here, you know, and, you know, we can't really do anything about it, but, you know, we, we sympathise. What can we do? And I said, well, look, I need to play games, so I need to really get somewhere. Um, but the problem is, you know, if you walk away, um, you don't get paid, you know, and, you know, you've got to think of your family as well. Um, because if I'd walked away, I was walking into unemployment. You know, I didn't have a job at that time or a club. But they said, look, what we'll do, and one of the things that happens, I don't know if it's still the case, I can't remember, but if you're, if you're, if you're a player who comes to the end of your contract and uh, you haven't got a club by uh, the 1st of July, the club also has to pay you for July. You know, so you get an extra month sort of thing, you know, but you have to sort of be there. And uh, what they said was Newcastle were brilliant because this was only, I don't know when it was, it was probably April, you know, mid-April, something like that. 
And uh, so I'd, I'd like three, three and a half months still to go to that point. And uh, the club said to me, look, what we'll do is, we'll, if you want, if you find somewhere to go and play, we'll pay you up, we'll give you what you're due, we'll let you go and you can go on with it to sort of take this pain away of what was happening. So the club were brilliant, you know, and they did that. And uh, I needed to get games because I was still going to play the following season and I needed to get fitter. So Sweden was a, a, a summer season, so it was an obvious place to go. And I got myself um, a club there and uh, I went over there and I was only there a few weeks, but it was brilliant, you know. Um, and so I going back, while I was still at Newcastle, the, the one of the later games in the season was uh, we played Sheffield. I wasn't playing, obviously involved by that time. I'd been bombed by Aussie. But I was at the game and uh, Sir Alec phoned me because they were playing, they were playing Sheffield Wednesday and uh, uh, sorry, um, Man U were playing uh, Sheffield Wednesday in the Cup semi-final, I think it was. So um, he said to me, I'm coming up to the game, do you want to meet and have a, a Chinese meal uh, after the game? So we did, and then he said, so we went for a meal, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm interested from hearts, so I've got interest, you know, here, there, and that. And he says, oh, he said, don't go back to Scotland, you know, you need to start your, your coaching career, your, 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 it's time for that, you know, you've done plenty, you've done well, you know. I'd actually played against Man U that season. We played them in the cup and I scored, you know. Um, so um, he'd seen me up close, but he said, no, nah. it's time for you to do your coaching. So he said, keep an eye out for anything that's going and, you know, get yourself in there. So um, he phoned me um, while I was in uh, Sweden and he said, uh, the, the, the Reading job. And I said, well, they're like, at the time, they were what is now the first division. And I had kind of thought, I never, and I'd never coached a youth team. I'd never coached anybody. I'd only taken my coaching badges. You know, I'd never actually worked with a team. Um, I had my A licence and that was it. And uh, I thought, therefore, you know, probably as low as I could get in um, would be fine for me if I was going to be the manager rather than if I was going to work with somebody I might have been in at a higher level. And I said, well, that's first division. I'm, I think I'm ready for that. And he said, of course you are, you know. Get in there. So I'd made, I'd tried to make contact with Reading to put my name forward, and I was, you know, that's another story. But I didn't, my name didn't reach them. And uh, after about a week in Sweden, I phoned them and I said, "Look, I've tried to get my name forward, and um, I'm struggling to find somebody that will do it for me." And he says, "He says, well, Neil Webb, who played for Man United at the time, he had come from Reading." And he come from the Reading area and he says, he knows the people there. He says, I'll get Webby to phone them. So then he come back to me and he says, look, Webby's actually it's changed there because they've got a new owner. So John Medeski had come in and Webby didn't, Webby didn't know John Medeski. So Alex says, after having a conversation, he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I'll phone him. He says, and I'll just say to him, look, if you're having interviews, I recommend that you speak to this lad. So that's what happened. And one of the directors who's still a friend of mine, Graham Denton, tells a story, he says he's in the office, and at that time it was just um, teletext, you know, he didn't have like Sky and all that, you know, teletext, and he says, the phone goes and uh, the secretary comes in, Jane comes in and says, it's Alec Ferguson on the phone, and John Medeski was like, who, you know, <laughs> so Graham's like, Alec Ferguson, Man United, you know, and they immediately think they might want to buy a player, you know, they're thinking, you know, you know, they see the pound signs. 
And then uh, John Badesky takes the call. And while he's on the call, uh, Graham said he's looking at the telecast and it says, that day, Man United versus um, uh, Stow Bucharest or somebody like that. Uh, oh, no, sorry, sorry. Totally, totally. Uh, Leisure Warsaw, it was. So Man United playing Leisure Warsaw in the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup. So John Medeski's talking to Sir Alec, and Sir Alec is saying, look, if you're having interviews, I recommend this line. And at the same time, Graham's saying to him, wish him good luck against Warsaw, right? So John's like that, and he says, John says to Alec Ferguson, good luck against Walsall. <laughs> you know, right? So John just didn't have a clue. But he introduced my name. That was good enough to get me an interview, and I'd like to think that, you know, after that, John and I and Graham, um, John Medeski and I just hit it off. And, you know, um, I knew when I left the interview, they asked me to stay over that night. And uh, I, th I thought to myself, got this job, you know. So that was me. It was a, and it was this, on the Saturday, it was the last game of the season. You know what I mean? So I literally got the job on the Friday. I got the job on the Thursday night. Friday went in to watch them training. Went to the game on the Saturday, and that was the end of the season. You know, they beat Stoke 1-0 at home. The physio took the team. I just watched. And then I had the whole summer then to prepare to be a manager. So that was a good thing as well. I didn't step I didn't step into the fire, as it were. I had the whole summer to prepare myself. Well, that has done you a huge favour in hindsight, hasn't it? Because I was my next question was going to be, how on earth did you prepare for that first training session if you only had a, a couple of days or whatever and you'd never taken a team before. So over that summer period before the players came back for pre-season, what were you doing? Were you almost giving yourself a crash course in coaching? I was certainly giving myself a crash course in management. I, you know, I rehearsed in my mind every single aspect that could possibly, every scenario that could possibly arise. Um, uh, and and I, I prepared my pre-season training meticulously and I knew exactly what I was going to do. I, I, you know, I, I got myself, I got myself ready. I remember I even, I, I thought, right, I'll buy a watch uh, so that I could time them and all that, you know, for pre-season to get everyone right. And I bought, I bought this uh, uh, lovely Breitling um, watch and uh, I thought, right, you know, so on the very first day, um, we took them in a one where we trained there was gallops so we took them in a run around the gallops and the, the, the team are sort of running ahead of me and of course I was only 34 and I'd been playing so I was still fit enough to tail end them at least I, but but when I'm running I'm looking at my watch because I was wanting them to run and jog and walk and run just a sort of fat leg kind of slow build up on the first day and then I realised that as I'm running I'm doing this you know and I can't actually see the watch. And it was at that point I realised my eyes were starting to go. I couldn't actually see. So I had to stop to look at the time to see how long they'd been running. And of course, the time I looked up, they were gone. You know, <laughs> this is a disaster. You know, I had to write, run and chase them. You know, he stopped them getting away around ahead of me. So, uh, yeah, those sort of things uh, didn't always go to plan. But I did actually plan every single uh, aspect of it. Yeah. And you were... You were incredibly successful at Reading, even with no experience. How can you be successful at that age? Is it almost that you're approaching the role with absolutely no fear whatsoever and just almost this naive enthusiasm for management? You know, 
we've discussed this recently, and you know, there's that saying, you know, that luck um, is where preparation meets opportunity, sort of thing. You know, that sort of was it Sophocles or somebody said, you know, um, and you need luck, you need a fair wind, and and the luck that I got was that um, I just went into it with the philosophy that of the teams that I played for, Hamburg attacking team, Aberdeen, hugely attacking team, you know, um, Celtic, you know, didn't know anything else, you know. So basically, um, you know, playing forward, playing with energy, aggressive, you know, shots, crosses, you know, all, all those sort of things. And I just set about uh, doing that. I didn't have any... Uh, ability really to buy players, so I was to work with what I had basically, um, and therefore, you know, I didn't make mistakes in purchasing players because I didn't purchase any, you know. So I worked with what I had, and uh, they turned out to be a right good bunch. And they started to play football that was getting commented on, but we still weren't winning enough games, you know. We still were sort of drawn, and but. The football, people were saying, oh, my God, I mean, what about the passing and, you know, and the movement and the energy was great. But we weren't winning any more games, really, than they had done previously. And then, you know, what makes you a genius, you know? First one happens is I get a phone call from uh, a guy called Bobby Williams, who is a scout for Reading, and I saw him recently at Hungerford. He's still, Bobby's still on the go, great guy. And he worked part-time for the club as a scout, but he also um, uh, was a salesman. And uh, he phoned me. I can't remember the order. Was the, this was the first one or the other one that I'm going to tell you about. Was the first one I can't Maybe this was the second player. But he phoned me one morning and he said, I'm in Bournemouth um, working. He said, I've just heard, he said that Bournemouth are prepared to let Jimmy Quinn go. Now, Jimmy Quinn was a goal scorer. Mm. Been at West Ham and that. he was a goal scorer. Uh, and I thought, yeah, we need a goal scorer. Um, so I went to John Medesky and I said, look, they want 30 grand or 35 grand for him. I hadn't asked him for anything. So he said, oh, OK. So we got Jimmy Quinn. Uh, and I think actually before that, I think Quinny came after it. Uh, another uh, bit of luck was one morning uh, I got a phone call from a guy that I didn't even know, but claimed to know me from Aberdeen, who was now based in America. And he said, oh, I met you loads of times in Aberdeen. And Jimmy, his name was, and Jimmy, you know, I was fine, you know, there's no problem, I couldn't remember. But um, he said, look, I've got uh, a boy here who wants to come to England. He said, he's got an English passport. He came out to college out here, and he's now wanting to come back. He's a goalkeeper. And I said, well, you know, what was he like? He says, oh, he says, I think you'll like him. Um, would you like, he says, would you like, he'll pay his own way over and, you know, he'll come and trial. So I said, nothing to lose, you know, send him over. What's his name? And he said, his name's Neil Hislop, right? I said, oh, well, send Neil over. He didn't say Neil Shaka Hislop. He didn't say Shaka Hislop. He just said Neil Hislop. So I didn't have a clue, A, that he was like six feet six, and I didn't have a clue that he was black, you know? Not that 
I held that against them, but the, at the time there weren't uh, many black goalkeepers. It was very, quite rare. Very, very. David James, maybe it was already on the scene. I don't know if it was anyone else. Um, so a friend of mine's driver picked him up at Gatwick one Sunday morning and delivered them to my house. And of course, I opened the door and here's a shadow of a, you know, a man. And, you know, he turned out not only to be a great friend and a fantastic guy, but the first day of training, I'm saying to Colin Lee, who was my assistant at the time, oh my God, you know, I'm looking at Shaka and he, he, he is just absolutely brilliant, you know. He's, you know, the, the boys are shooting and he's sort of like catching things that other keepers would be flying at, you know, he was just like, you know, you know, pulling things in and so, and he could kick the ball, you know, into orbit, and he was so accurate with his kind. He was, he's, he'd be a great goal again today with his feet, certainly, you know. So we've seen him like a couple of days, and I said, look, we've got to get this boy. So right away, I went back to John and I said, right, we've got to sign this boy. So we signed uh, Shaka, and uh, and then we signed Quinny. So what then happened was, from all this great play that we'd had and all this fantastic build-up and all that, we suddenly had a guy who stopped goals. And then we had a guy at the other end who scored goals. And then psh, that was when our trajectory went like that. And that wasn't any on me. You know, I wasn't a genius, you know, to do that. That was Bobby Williams phoning me and Jimmy phoning me from America. You know, that you do need a bit of luck, particularly that level when you've not got funds and, you know, and you're a young manager starting. And I did get luck yeah yeah you took them to promotion and you were flying in what's now the championship do you think you were too young and inexperienced to take over a team leicester city or bottom of the premier league were were you too inexperienced to be able to lift a team who must have been so moribund of confidence you know they must have been struggling um i i I think you know i think um i might have done a little bit better but, you know, when I went there, I was still very close to Sir Alec at the time. And Sir Alec said to me, don't go. You know, don't go there. And uh, I, I said, well, you know, it's Premier League and you know, all this stuff. And it, what you've got to remember is at that time, uh, the Reading were second in the league. But it was the only season when only one team went up. Oh, yes. When the re- right? league. It was, it was when they restructured. So only one team was going up. So I looked at the odds of that and I thought, mm, I'm not sure, you know. Um, had two teams being up, I probably wouldn't have let it. But only one was going up. So um, Sir Alex said to me, he said, look, I'm telling you, he said, if I, if I went there as manager, you know, Sir Alex, he said, I couldn't keep them up. He said, no way you're keeping them up. He says, they're going down. He says, I know their players, they're going down. And I said, well, if they go down, I'll bring them back up. And he says, well, that's a big risk. He says, that's a risk, you know, you go there, you're, you know, you've you know, you've done so much to start your name. He was wanting me to stay. He said, look, wait, be patient. But, you know, I don't always do what Sir Alec tells me. And uh, I went to Leicester. And I don't regret going, you know, because um, I, I regret leaving Leicester more than I do regret going there, even though they went down. Because, again, we played some fantastic football. The chairman was brilliant, Martin George. Had some great players, you know, Gary Parker and people like that. that Pontus Carmack that I took there. And, you know, um, 
but I left only after exactly a year, you know, and I went to Wolves. But um, I, I, I probably should have stayed at, at Reading. But you know, Reading at the time when I, when it was first declared that there was interest, Reading didn't do anything to keep me. You know, so John uh, John Medeski phoned me up. Uh, this is a common denominator, by the way. All the people I work with are all now sirs. You know, <laughs> I don't know if it's me, but they're all now Sir John Medeski, Sir Alec Ferguson. You know. Um, but John Medeski um, said to me, well, go and speak to them, but don't come back here asking for the sort of money that they're offering. So I said, well, fine, you know, okay. What he should have said was, no, no, you're not, there's no way you're going to speak to them. He should have got his board down and he should have made me a deal. Because I, I was on peanuts at the time. You know, I was on, literally, I was, I was subsidising myself at that time to do the job. Um, you know, I still had a house in Newcastle I couldn't sell and I had, you know, accommodation for the family and all that in, in, in Reading and I was getting paid absolute peanuts you know anything that I earned was like bonuses and stuff like that which I got some of because we were doing well but he, he didn't say like look wait no don't go and speak to them I'll get Graham and the other guys in we'll have a chat and we'll make you an offer to stay he just said go and speak to them but don't come back and then of course when I came back and said well look I'm going to go he then said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, we'll offer you something. And now they started scrambling to find an offer that was going to keep me. But at that time, it was too late, you know. I, I decided I was going to the Premier League, you know. So I did. I went and, of course, they did go down and I left before they come back up. Yeah. And you said you left Leicester and you regret the way that you left after a year and the fans weren't happy. I think you had a 2am visit from a fan, didn't you? I mean, what does that do to you and what do you think in regards to your family? You know, I, I got myself a reputation at the time and looking back, clearly, people were right. You know, I was I was kind of mercenary. You know, what you have to remember as well, though, is I also had Sir Alec at my back, pushing me and directing me, you know. And as much as uh, he didn't want me to go to Leicester, he wanted me to go to Wolves. You know, I mean, he was firmly behind the idea that I should go to Wolves. Um, massively behind the idea. Um, so, you know, I was I was kind of pressure there. Um, so it didn't feel right when I walked out in Leicester, but it seemed like the best thing for me and for my family. And, you know, one of the things that he said to me was, Look, you're going to make enemies, but what can you do? You know, that's life. And, you know, he'd sort of, you know... My, my, my trajectory at that time was at some point hopefully going to Man United. You know, that's the sort of route I felt I was on, you know. And uh, he certainly encouraged that kind of uh, mentality in my part. So uh, as much as I um, found it difficult, I still managed to do it. Um, and I, I described it for years and years and years. And even now, when I pass, when I pass Junction 21 on the M1, I kind of duck down a bit, you know. Because I, I feel embarrassed, you know, about you know, walking out in Leicester. Now. I'd, uh, you know, I let Martin George down, who'd been hugely supportive, and I'd brought in players like Pontus Carmark and Gary Parker and Mark Robbins and guys, and I, I just walked away from them, you know, and it, it, that wasn't right. You know, I shouldn't have done that. And I, I say that not because of anything that happened afterwards, because I had a great time at Wolves. I loved it at Wolves. But it just wasn't... Um, wasn't morally right. It was mercenary. Right. But I, I also read that you kind of changed your approach from that point onwards in terms of appointing backroom staff. Because again, you've looked at the bigger picture of people's jobs. 
Yeah, well, I, I went to Wolves with my backroom staff, but I went there because there was no backroom staff. So all the backroom staff had went with Brian Little. Hmm. Um, eh, sorry, with uh, eh, after so when Graham Taylor, sorry, when Graham when when Brian Little left Leicester, hmm. I arrived at Leicester. There was no backroom staff, so I brought my own. Okay. And then when I left Leicester to go to Wolves, Graham Taylor had left, and Wolves had got rid of most of the backroom staff. Hmm. Bobby Downs was still there. Um, but uh, most of the rest had gone, so I was able to take my staff. Then, uh, rightly, after I left Wolves and eventually went to Millwall, by that time I had realised that it wasn't, again, morally right to just sack people or get rid of people because they happen to be there. There's good people at clubs and, you know, there's, there's continuity in those people. Um, and it, it's hard to get a job, you know. By the time I got to Millwall, I'd been 20 months out of work. You know, so it dawned to me how difficult it is to get a job, you know, even for somebody like me who thought I was a hot shot, you know, I wasn't getting a job. So for other people who are doing a good job and are at clubs, why just bail them out? You know, you've got to be careful. So I, I did change my attitude towards that. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about being out of work. Uh, because you did well at Wolves initially. I think that third place finish was their highest of many, many years. And unfortunately, you just didn't quite make the top two. And then I think Sir Jack Haywood made that infamous mm. comment, didn't he? What was it? The golden, the golden team no longer going to bankroll the club. Yeah. And I think he sacked his son as chairman as well, didn't he? So it must have been a strange environment to work in. It was hugely difficult. You know, I mean, what happened was, you know, I, I recognised, I went there in December mm. and by the end of the season, we stayed up. Mm. And if anybody thinks that wasn't a, an achievement, they're wrong. Uh, a lot of Wolves supporters may not realise that it was possible. I mean, Man City went down out of that league to the, 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 the first division and other clubs have done the same, big clubs. So Wolves were heading that way. So when I went there, I managed to keep them up and that's the way I look at it. And the thing that I had to address was the defence. So I bought two centre-halves, um, A.D. Williams from Reading, who I knew really, really well and knew his character, and um, uh, Keith... Um, uh, what? Oh, my son's shouting in the background. Keith Curl, I, I had a blank there. Uh, Keith Curl, uh, Keith Curl, yeah. So I signed the two of them uh, in the summer, and we went on pre-season tour to uh, Austria. And while we were on pre-season tour, both of them done their cruciate ligaments, right? Wow. So I didn't have either of them until after Christmas, and we finished third. Now, my argument would be that if either one of them or if both of them had played from the start of the season, we'd have been promoted. No danger we'd have been promoted, you know. So as it was, we finished third. We lost in the playoffs to Crystal Palace. And rightly, as you say, Sir Jack the next morning lambasted the, everything about it, which was ridiculous because we'd finished 20th the season before and I'd finished third in my first full season. Um uh, and said he was no longer going to be the golden team. And he removed his son, Jonathan, from the chairman, who was the guy who had brought me in. Mm. Now, um, him and his son didn't talk for something like 12 years. You know, so, you know, imagine where that left me. Yeah. You know, I, I, what I remember about it was that every single board meeting, I was kind of standing up, sort of shouting and defending myself and that, you know. And it, there was inevitability from that morning you know, I was on the way out, even although it took another, you know, year and a half or two years. Um, that following season, we 
didn't uh, make it to us, but we got to the semi-final of the FA Cup. We lost 1-0 to Arsenal, who went on and won it. And the other two teams were Sheffield United and Newcastle, and I'm convinced had we drawn either of them, we'd have got to the final. We'd have beaten both of them. We'd beaten Sheffield United that season already. Newcastle weren't a great side uh, at that time. And with my connection there, I think, and I got a lot, you know, rules up for it and we'd have got to the final. As it was, we played a fantastic Arsenal team and lost one nil. Um, so it didn't do badly, you know, and I, I loved my time there right to the very end. Um, but from that morning after the playoffs, I was on my back foot, definitely. I was on my way out. Yeah. And after that long period out of the game, you've got the Millwall job. What kind of character do you need to show to take on a management job like Millwall? Well, I think you have to be um, robust, to say the least. But the reason I took the job was um, the guy who represented me at the time, Phil Smith, phoned me and said, would you fancy Millwall? This is after 20 months. And I hadn't tried for many jobs. In the, in, the, in the six months before that, I'd applied for a couple. For the year before that, I hadn't applied for any. It took me time to get over rules. So when I, by the time I started applying for jobs, I wasn't getting them. And I wasn't even getting interviews. Um, and then he phoned me and he says, what about Millwall? And I said, well, you know, I'd like a job, you know, and there's a bit about Millwall, obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot about them. Um, having played for Hamburg and Celtic and Newcastle, I like clubs with an edge, you know, and in a different sort of way, Millwall are a club with an edge. So I thought, well, yeah, I'd, I'd consider it. So he says, well, I know the chairman, Theo Pafitas, I'll phone him. So he phoned Theo and he said, look, Theo, um, what about Mark McGee? And Theo had said, well, it, look, he says, well, I've got a short list. I'm working through it. I don't really need any more names. Thanks very much. No thanks. And Phil's quite um, <laughs> determined, you know, so at the time. So like the next day, he phones Theo again. You got a manager yet, you know? No, but I've got a list and I'm still working through them. And this goes on for about a week and he's still not appointed a manager. So Phil, uh, Phil's saying to him all the time, look, what's the harm? Just speak to him, you know? You've not got anybody. You obviously don't like the people on your list. Come on and speak to him. And he kept banging and banging at him. And eventually Theo said, well, all right, okay, I'll give him an hour. Send him in. So I went up to the, the Ryman's, you know, Theo Fetus, you know, owns Ryman's, the stationers. They've got their offices at um, uh, Slough, and uh, that's not bad for me because I was living at Reading at the time, you know. So I scoot along the M4 to meet Theo this Thursday night about, at the end of business, you know, so about five, half five, somewhere when the offices are shutting and all the people have gone and he's there on his own. So I go there to the office and I ended up being there for about three and a half hours or something like that. And by the time I came out, I understood that him and I were kindred spirits. We saw the game the same. We saw players the same. We thought the same. We had a lot in common. And I had a feeling that I had a great chance of getting the job, but he didn't appoint me. What he said was, he said, look, come to the game on Saturday. Don't, we're not, not as our guest, just pay in. Go under the radio, wear a hat and all that, you know, and have a look and tell me what you think. So I went with my friend Bill to the game on the Saturday and did just that. And they beat, I think they beat Rotherham 4 nothing or something like that. They beat somebody 4 nothing. So on the Saturday night, he phoned me, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't think you need a manager, you know, because <laughs> it won 4 nothing. 
and this was about five games into the season or something like that, you know. So Cena had just started and he had made the change. So I talked to him about it and he says, right, he says, look, he says, I'll phone you in the morning. He says, there's some people I need to speak to. So he's obviously a director, isn't he? He's got to okay things with, although he's the power. Um, so he phoned me the next morning. He says, right, the job's yours if you want it. And I said, of course. So I took the job. And it was one of the best experiences of any, all the jobs I've had. It was a brilliant place to be. Um, we had issues that you had to deal with. We had a riot. We had all sorts. Um, but we were really successful. And he was as good a chairman as all the chairman ever worked for. Mm. You know, he's a great, great guy. He's intelligent, you know, so he can challenge you. He's um, honest. He's generous. He's fair. You know, he's everything you want in a chairman. And then he, he, even the challenging thing is a good thing for a manager. You know, he keeps you on your toes. So all around, uh, the fans, phew, never had a problem with the fans. Go back there now, get great reception. You know, I loved it there. I really did. Yeah. Well, promotion from the third tier, close to the Premier League. I think you lost to Birmingham in the playoffs. But you mentioned yeah. Theo Profitis and how positive that relationship was. But it seemed to end when there were rumours that he was trying to have an involvement in, in team selection. So did that relationship break down or was it just a, a silly thing in hindsight? No, it was it was a kind of... Um, it, it, it was almost... Uh, I don't know if osmosis is the right word again, but what happened was that, that at the start of that last season, Theo had decided that he was leaving at the end of the season. So he was going to get rid of the club. He was going to step down as chairman, sell it, give it away, do something, you know, but he was getting out. And because of that, it kind of, it started to make him want a wee bit more involvement, you know, because he was one of his last hurrahs, it were. And, you know, things like, you know, where he would phone me on a Friday night and would have a 10 minute conversation about what the team was going to be. And he'd never ever say to me, oh, I think he should play. He would say, if he didn't think, if he didn't agree with me, he would maybe say something like, um, maybe you should have a wee think about, you know, I've, I've got two left backs, Robbie Ryan and uh, Tony Craig. And he'd say, I'd say, I'm playing Robbie Ryan. And he'd say, well, you know, they've got a speedy winger or whatever, and Tony's quicker, maybe, you know. Anyway, he said, it's up to you. That was all he would say. Um, or he'd say, sorry, or he would say, you've got subs, you can always change it. You know, and that was usually a sign that he didn't agree with my team. Um, but he wouldn't ever, ever force in on me. And then what happened by the end of it, that conversation one night took four hours. And it was about, it was about the goalkeepers. And that just became too much. You know, it's like Friday night, and I was on the phone for four hours discussing it with him. And after the game the next day, I said to him, Theo, enough's enough. You know, look, you want, you want more and more influence. You know, I went to his house after the game, you know, and he said, look, you're right, but I'll back off. Let's see if we can just see this out, you know. And then about 10 days later, we played Preston in the midweek and we get beat 1-0 at home. And by that time, I was starting to, you know, had enough, I'd had enough, you know. So him and I went upstairs and we agreed on that, you know, that we talked me we we talked each other around really on the Sunday previous, two weeks previous, but at that point, you know, and I said, enough's enough, you know. You 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 do what you want to do and have any influence that you want to have, but 
you know, enough for me. So, um, so I left, and it was the right thing to do. It was the right time to go. Yeah, and then you gave yourself another challenge at Brighton because we're both living in Brighton, so it must have had a real impact on you personally. But it's not that it wasn't the great Amex Stadium, was it? It was essentially a non-league ground you were playing on at the Withdean. So, how do you reflect on your Brighton experience? Because again, you won another promotion, didn't you? Yeah, well, um, it, it was really weird the way it happened because living in Bromley, um, South South London, um, I had started occasionally, like if I was on my own on a Sunday or a day off, I'd I'd come down to Brighton and have a wee walk around the lanes or that, you know. So I'd got to see Brighton a wee bit and got and I thought, hmm. I could live here and work at Millwall. You know, it's not that far from the training ground. It's an hour, you know, to the training ground. And I'd started to think that way. And then I left Millwall. And like 10 days later, I get offered the Brighton job. So it was like happy days, you know, because I was already thinking about moving there, you know. So I came to Brighton, yeah. And yes, um, we got promotion that season uh, and, you know, had a, a, a fantastic time. I love living here. It's a great town, you know, got family here now and, yeah. Yeah. And there's been quite a few times during your career where it looks like you should surely get that kind of bigger opportunity. And it happened again, didn't it? You know, because after that, it was Millwall. You got, at uh, Millwall, Motherwell, who you did really well with. There's talk of Celtic. And, and jobs like that coming up, but but didn't quite happen. But how do you how do you reflect on on Motherwell? Because that must have been such a tough job at times with things, especially I'm thinking about how do you deal with a situation like the Phil O'Donnell death? Because you've got to be more than a manager with things like that, haven't you? Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things as a manager you have to prepare yourself for. And and, and nowadays managers are coming better prepared. You know, there's a lot of the sort of course I'm doing yesterday, you know, the diploma course in football management for younger managers. There's other courses that, that even the pro license nowadays covers all sorts of health and well-being and, and, and all of those sort of issues and the sort of issues you're talking about in terms of the things that you come up against in, in modern management. So they're covered a lot more than they were when I started because when you start, you know, all you think you're going to do is pick a football team and coach them. And in fact, you know, you deal with divorce and you deal with addiction and you deal with all sorts of things that you come across, depression and all the issues that normal people have because footballers, after all, are, are people, you know. So you have to deal with all of that. So therefore, you have to develop a, an ability to do that. So luckily enough, by the time I was at Motherwell made the, the tragic uh, event of, you know, Phil's death, I was experienced enough to kind of find a way to manage it you know it, it's it wasn't easy of course it wasn't but you know i think um, um I'm, I'm happy with the way i dealt with it um but uh, mother mother was a, a a great time at that time the team played some of the football we played was blinding and that's been a you know a trait i'd like to think of all my teams the way we've played the type of football but you know one of the things i've not done well you know i left reading when alec ferguson said i shouldn't leave you know, I left Leicester when I didn't want to leave. Um, I got the sack at, uh, um, at Wolves um, after, you know, the chairman had left and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, Millwall, it was the right time to leave. 
what I didn't do was probably leave at the right times. You know, I, I you know, like uh, maybe I should have left earlier at Millwall, and certainly at Brighton I should have left earlier because you know Dick Knight convinced me that I had a job for life sort of thing. You know, and in fact it didn't turn out that way at all. You know, so when when uh, the biggest achievement and I think the biggest achievement in my managerial career was keeping Brighton up when we went in the championship. You know, and if you look at you know, the, the, the people talk about win percentages and all that. And if you looked at that season for me, a win percentage was probably something like 20% or something like that. But the fact is, we stayed in the championship. And, you know, given the squad we had, given the circumstances, the finances and the stadium, you know, 7,000 people, um, it, it, that was my biggest achievement, I think, as a manager, keeping them up. Now, what I should have done was left them. Yeah. I should have said thanks very much because I don't think I can do that again and left and gambled that I'd get a, a, another job, you know. But instead of that, Dick said, look, it doesn't matter if we go down. We know we've got to sell players to fight the, 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 the battle for the stadium, for the planning permission, you know. Public inquiries were costing millions. So all the money we were making and you know, doing what we were doing and uh, selling players was going on public inquiries, not in the team. So there was inevitability about going down the following season, and and of course we did. And then Dick, you know, found it difficult to keep the finances going. People were helping, you know, Norman Cook, you know, Fat Boy Slim, and Desmond Lynham, and all sorts of people were putting their hand. Tony Bloom, all sorts of people were putting their hand in their pocket to help. And then of course Tony stepped up and said, "Look, I'll do the whole thing." But Tony wanted change, you know, he wanted different people, and he didn't want me. So, you know, I was shown the door. So the mistake I made was I should have left when we stayed up. Hmm. And lots of Brighton fans who I've talked to talk about that season when you kept them up. It, it was a hell of an achievement. And I read an interview from you a few years ago when you said that you felt you still felt unfulfilled as a manager. But can you look back a few years on and think to yourself, look at situations like the Brighton job, the three promotions, 900-odd games as a league manager and think, you know what, I, I, did, I did well. No. Really? No, uh, not at all. I don't have that feeling at all. You know, I total respect for those jobs, I total respect for, you know, the people and, you know, the, the, the night at Cardiff coming back uh, was one of the best nights of my life. You know, the, who was it talking to me? Somebody mentioned it yesterday, I think it was. I can't think who I spoke to yesterday, but, you know, you, 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 have these moments in your career and they're, they're fantastic. But when I set out, I set out to be a premiership manager my whole career. And I set out, once I had been fed a few crumbs in that, to be manager of Man United, you know? And instead of that, I've spent half a season in the Premier League, a few seasons in the Championship, a few seasons in Division One, a couple in Division Two, a couple in the Premier League in England, you know, a couple of outings with Motherwell into Europe. Nothing like what I had, you know, hoped for. Mm. So, in a sense, you know, I don't really take a great deal of satisfaction out of, you know, what I've achieved. If, you know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. Would you go back in? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I, I especially. 
you know, at this stage, after working with Gordon Strachan in the national team and being an assistant for the first time, that's a role I would love. I'd love to go in with a young manager and help him and mentor him, if you like, and give him my experience, you know, without the threat of, you know, me wanting his job, you know, that sort of thing. I'd love to do that. That would be something that would probably appeal to me more than, say, being a manager of a second division team or something like that, you know. Um, I'd rather work at a slightly higher level, but with someone, um, you know, and I'm doing all the stuff that you know I'm doing, you know, I'm trying to, you know, do sort of leadership and mentoring and all, the, all of this stuff, which are hugely enjoyable and uh, satisfying, um, but it's not quite the same as being involved directly in the game. Mm. And how did you enjoy international football? in terms of getting back into it in that assistant manager's role and not being involved with players on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, but that wasn't a problem. Um, it was so enjoyable, you know, working, um, sorry, my contact lines, um, working with Gordon. I'd never worked with Gordon before. Gordon's my mate, you know, but we'd never worked together. So when he called me and said, look, uh, when he got the job, I thought, mm, you know, but Gordon's got great people around him, you know, that he's worked with Gary Pendry and the likes, you know. And I thought, well, he might take Gary and, you know, but he thought the Scottish thing was important. So he called me a few days after he got the job and said, would you come and work with me? Of course, I jumped at the chance. And then the biggest disappointment for us, obviously, is we didn't qualify for a tournament, but we did a lot of good things and we had a lot of great performances and a lot of great experiences and working together over that period was just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since Scotland qualified for a tournament. They're going okay at the moment. So Absolutely. Was, yeah. And just finally, have you still got the same passion for football? Do you still watch the game intensely? I mean, at the moment, I'm working for... Uh, um, or I'm going in to do games for Mola TV, who, who are Indonesian, uh, Sky, if you like. Yeah, I know. Um, and, and they cover an awful lot of games. And uh, I'm doing the Bundesliga for them. Um, a lot of Saturdays, so really enjoying that. Um, but I, I watch all the football. I was, you know, I, I'm giving a little bit of a help at the moment to a friend who's manager at uh, Lewis, uh, Hugo Langton, and they were they were struggling a little bit. So he asked me last week to come in and look at them and give them a little bit of help. Well, I went in, I spoke to them in the Zoom call last Monday. They had a game on Tuesday night. I talked them through it. They drew one each away to the top team. I went on Saturday and had a little bit of, I went to training on Thursday and had a bit of input and then went to the game Saturday. They won 1 0. So they've totally turned it around. So I'm enjoying that little bit of an input with Hugo, but you know, I'm not going to stay. I'm not, I'm not going there as part of the team. I'm just lending my hand. So, you know, I love it. You know, I love it. And I'll keep doing things like that as long as, uh, as, long as I'm able to. Yeah, football very much in the DNA. Thank you ever so much indeed, Mark. I've really enjoyed this today. And I'm sure I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Many thanks to Mark for his time and hopefully he'll be back in football soon in some capacity. If you've got any comments on this episode or any of our previous shows, then get in touch via Twitter at Richard Lenton. That's at Richard Lenton. And please subscribe if you haven't already, whether that's iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. 
For more information, visit www.psm-group.co.uk.